Section 2, Chapters 3 and 4 of The Story of Books by Gertrude Burford Rawlings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adam Marcetich, August 2010. Chapter 3, Books and Libraries in Classical Times. In Literary Greece and Rome, so far as we can tell from the somewhat meagre information handed down to us, literature was pursued for her own sake, and filthy lucre did not enter into the calculations of authors, who appear to have been satisfied if their works met with the approval of those who were competent to judge of them. Literature walked alone, and had not as yet entered into partnership with commerce. The writing of books for pecuniary profit is a wholly modern development, and even now it is more often an aspiration than a realization. In those days, when an author desired to make known a work, he would read it aloud to an invited party of friends. The reading of original compositions became in time a common item of the program provided by a host for the entertainment of his guests, and it is not difficult to imagine that such a custom was often subjected to grave abuse from the guest's point of view. Later, the private reading developed into the public lecture. Lectures of this kind became very frequent in Rome, and we are told that it was looked upon as a sort of festival when a fashionable author announced a reading. But we are also told that some of the audience often treated a lecturer of mediocre merit with scant courtesy, entering late and leaving early, and frequently they who applauded most were those who had listened least. The public reading is recorded of a poem composed by Nero. It was read to the people on the capital, and the manuscript, which was written in letters of gold, was afterwards deposited in the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus. If a work happened to attract attention by reason of its author's reputation or its own merit, it was copied by students or others who had heard and admired it. This was the only way in which literary productions could be dispersed and made known to the public at large, or a collection of books be gathered together. As the literary taste developed, those who were sufficiently wealthy kept slaves whose sole business it was to copy books, which books might be either the original works of their master, who by this means disseminated his compositions, or the works of others, for the benefit of their master's library. These slaves, being of necessity well-educated and skillful scribes, were purchased at high prices and held in great esteem by their owners. But obviously it was only the rich who could command such service, and ordinary folk had to resort to the bookseller. The booksellers of Athens and Rome were those who made copies of books, or employed slaves to make them, or sold or let them on hire to those who had need of them. The author had no voice in these matters, there was nothing to prevent anyone who borrowed or otherwise got possession of his work from making copies of the manuscript if he chose, and making money from the copies if he could. Copyright was a word unknown in those days and for centuries after. 
the booksellers advertise their wares by notices affixed to the doorposts of their shops giving the names of new or desirable works and sometimes read these works aloud to their friends and patrons their shops were favorite places of resort for persons of leisure and literary tastes copyists of books retained a high place in the order of things literary until the introduction of printing and without their labors we should know nothing of ancient literature seeing that no original manuscript of any classical author has survived and apart from its purely literary value which is variable the work of the early medieval scribes in many instances reaches a high artistic standard and exhibits marvelous skill in an accomplishment now numbered among the lost arts on the subject of libraries as on all literary matters in ancient times hardly any solid information is available but we know that egypt was to the fore in this respect as in so many others yet all of the collections of books which since they are frequently alluded to in the inscriptions she undoubtedly possessed stored in her king's palaces and her temple archives there is only one which is mentioned in history and that by a single historian according to diodorus siculus this library was made by ozymandias who was king of egypt at a date which has not been precisely determined he tells us that its entrance exhibited the inscription place of healing for the soul or as it has been variously rendered balsam for the soul or dispensary of the mind although doubt has been thrown on the perfect accuracy of the historian in introducing the name of ozymandias in this connection modern egyptologists have identified the plan of the library with a hall of the great palace temple of Ramses the second the ramesium or memnomium at thebes the door jams of this hall utter their own testimony to its ancient use for they bear the figures of thoth the god of writing and soph a goddess who is accompanied by the titles lady of letters and presider over the hall of books astel in the origin and progress of writing says that the books and colleges of egypt were destroyed by the persians but matter on the other hand in l'ecole d'alexandre declares that the temple archives were in existence in the greek and roman periods probably astel's statement is not intended to be as sweeping as it appears Babylonia and Assyria also had their libraries, according to Professor Sacy, the Higher Criticism and the Monuments. They were filled with libraries, and the libraries with thousands of books. The Royal Library, already referred to as furnishing so rich a treasure of cuneiform tablets, was begun by Sennacherib, who reigned 705 to 681 B.C., and completed by Asur Bani Pal, who reigned about 668 to 626 B.C. There were libraries, too, in Palestine in early days, but we know nothing of them. 
they may have been archives or places where records were kept rather than libraries as we understand the term the name of kirjash sefer a city near hebron means city of books and survives from pre-israelitish times by the jews records and the book of the law were preserved in the temple almost as scanty are the accounts of the libraries of ancient greece the tyrant pisistratus 537 to 527 bc has been credited traditionally with the establishment in athens of the first public library but although he encouraged letters and the preservation of literature there is no good reason for accepting the tradition as authentic but of all the libraries those of alexandria were considered the largest and most celebrated and yet notwithstanding their eminence the accounts relating to them are confused and contradictory alexandria which although situated in egypt was a greek and not an egyptian city was founded by alexander the great in three hundred thirty two b c and rapidly rose to a high position its buildings its learning its luxury and its books became world famous the first library was established by ptolemy soter a ruler of literary tastes about three hundred b c and was situated in that part of the city known as the Bruchium. Copyists were employed to transcribe manuscripts for the benefit of the institution, and it is said that under Ptolemy Eurgetes, all books brought into Egypt were seized and sent to the library to be transcribed. The copies were returned to the owners, whose wishes were evidently not consulted, in place of the originals, which went to enrich the store in the great library ptolemy philadelphus is said to have supplemented soter's library by another which was lodged in the temple of serapis but it has been conjectured with more probability that the serapium collection began with the temple archives to which the ptolemies made additions from time to time these additions as some have affirmed including part of Aristotle's library. But here, also, contradictions are encountered, and it seems impossible to say exactly whether this statement refers to Aristotle's autograph writings, or to copies of them, or to manuscripts of other authors' works formerly in his possession. It was Ptolemy Philadelphus, we are told by Galen, who gave the Athenians fifteen talents, a great convoy of provisions, and exemption from tribute, in exchange for the autographs and originals of the tragedies of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. Two other libraries also helped to make up the glory of Alexandria, one in the Sebastium, or Temple of Augustus, and one in connection with the museum. The latter, however, was a much later foundation. The museum or university itself has been instituted by Ptolemy Soter, and although it was quite distinct from the library which is associated with his name, there was doubtless some relationship between the two. Her museum and libraries, and the encouragement she offered to learning, combined to set Alexandria at the head of the literary world, and to make her 
the first great seat of literary Hellenism, Jeb. She was also the center of the book industry, that is, of the reproduction of books, as distinguished from their first production. This was owing in a large measure to the number of professional copyists attracted by the facilities afforded to them, and to the fact that the papyrus trade had its headquarters here. Another famous library of this period was that of the kings of Pergamus, founded by Attalus I, who reigned from 241 to 197 BC. Between Pergamus and Alexandria, there was vigorous competition. In the end, however, Alexandria had the satisfaction of seeing her rival completely humbled, for Antony presented the books of Paragamus, stated to have been about 200,000 in number, to Cleopatra, who added them to Alexandria's treasures. At least, so says Plutarch, but Plutarch's authority for the statement was Calvisius, whose veracity was not above suspicion. How the enormous accumulation of manuscripts gathered by Alexandria came to perish so utterly is not clear. The Romans accidentally fired the Bruchium when they reduced the city, but, according to several accounts, there were still a goodly number of books remaining at the time of the Saracen invasion in 638 A.D., the story of the Caliph Omar's reply to a plea for the preservation of the books is well known. If they contain anything contrary to the word of God, he is reported to have said, they are evil. If not, they are superfluous. And forthwith he had them distributed among the four thousand baths of the city, which they provided with fuel for six months. But several authorities doubt this story, and assert that long before Omar's time, the Alexandrian libraries had ceased to exist. Though very far from being as full as could be wished, the accounts of libraries in Rome are more numerous than any relating to libraries in other parts of the ancient world. Besides the collections of books made by private persons, which in one or two instances were generously opened to the public by the owner, there were the imperial libraries and the more strictly public libraries. Among the emperors whose names are especially associated with the gathering and preservation of books are Augustus, Tiberius, and Trajan. Julius Caesar had formed a scheme for the establishment of a public library, but it is not clear whether it was ever carried out or no. Domitian, to replace the library in the capital, which had been destroyed, sent scholars abroad to collect manuscripts and to copy some of those at Alexandria. Under Constantine, the Roman Republic libraries numbered 29 and were very frequently lodged in the temples. Last in point of date, come the libraries of Byzantium, the city which the Emperor Constantine in 330 A.D. made the capital of the eastern portion of the empire and named after himself. He at once began to gather books there, and his successors followed his example. The various libraries were established, 
and those which survived the fires which occurred from time to time in the city existed until its capture by the turks in fourteen fifty two on this occasion and also after the assault by the crusaders in twelve o three the libraries probably suffered it was said too by some that leo the third wantonly destroyed a large number of books but the assertion cannot be proved among the lost treasures of constantinople was the only authentic copy of the proceedings of the council of nice held in three hundred twenty five a d to deal with the arian heresy the ultimate fate of the imperial library at constantinople yet remains a problem some are of opinion that it was destroyed by amurath the fourth and that none but comparatively unimportant arabic and other oriental manuscripts made up the sultan's library some believe that in spite of repeated assertions to the contrary on the part of turkish officials and others there somewhere lies a secret hoard neglected and uncared for perhaps but nevertheless existent of ancient and valuable greek manuscripts the seraglio has usually been considered to be the repository of this hoard and access to the seraglio is very difficult and almost impossible to obtain in the year eighteen hundred professor carlyle during his travels in the east took enormous pains and used every means in his power to reach the bottom of the mystery surrounding the seraglio treasures he was assured by every turkish officer whom he consulted on the subject that no greek manuscripts existed there and when by dint of influence in high quarters and much patience and perseverance he at length gained permission to examine the seraglio library he found that it consisted chiefly of arabic manuscripts and contained not a single greek latin or hebrew writing the library or such part of it as the professor was shown was approached through a mosque and consisted of a small cruciform chamber measuring only twelve yards at its greatest width one arm of the cross served as an antechamber and the other three contained the bookcases the books were laid on their sides one on the other the ends outward their titles were written on the edges of the leaves the result of the professor's researches went to confirm the belief held by so many that no greek manuscripts had survived on the other hand the jealousy and suspicion of the turks would render it at least possible that despite the apparent straightforwardness with which mr carlyle was treated there were stores of manuscripts which were kept back from him a final touch of mystery was given to this fascinating subject by a tradition concerning a certain building in constantinople which had been closed up ever since the time of the turkish conquest in the fifteenth century of the existence of this building professor carlyle was certain the tradition asserted that it contained many of the former possessions of the greek emperors and among these possessions professor carlyle expected that the remains of the imperial library would be found if such remains existed 
of other libraries of olden times such as those of antioch and ephesus or those in private possession in the country houses of italy and gaul and which perished at the hands of the barbarians it is not necessary to speak more fully it is sufficient to point out that they existed and that though we possess few details as to their furniture or arrangement we are justified in concluding that the latter at any rate were luxuriously appointed it must not be inferred however that all the books which disappeared from these various centres were of necessity destroyed many and particularly some of the byzantine manuscripts were dispersed over europe and survive to enrich our libraries and museums of today. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4. Books in Medieval Times The books of the Middle Ages are a special subject in themselves, since they include all the illuminated manuscripts of Ireland, England, and the continent. We can therefore do little more than indicate their historical place in the story of books we have only to look at a medieval illuminated manuscript to understand how books were regarded in those days and with what lavish expenditure of time and skill the quaint characters were traced and the ornaments designed and executed and having looked we gather that books being rare were appreciated and being sacred were reverenced and that it was deemed a worthy thing to make a good book and to make it beautiful sometimes the monkish artist's handiwork had a result not foreseen by him for we read that when saint boniface the saxon missionary who gave his life to the conversion of germany wrote to ask the abbess edberga for a missal he desired that the colors might be gay and bright even as a glittering lamp and an illumination for the hearts of the gentiles it is easy to imagine how the brilliant pages would attract the color-loving barbarians and prepare the way for friendly advances it is probable that the custom of ornamenting books with drawings was derived from the egyptians by the greeks and from the greeks by the romans among whom decorated books were common although they are known to us chiefly by means of copies preserved in byzantine and italian manuscripts of a more recent period these and a few examples dating from the time of constantine exhibit a style evidently derived from classical models a survey of medieval books properly begins with the early irish manuscripts which stand at the head of a long and glorious line stretching chronologically from the seventh century of our era to the fifteenth although it is not known where the art was born to which these wonderful productions of celtic pencraft owe their origin it is ireland nevertheless which has provided us with the earliest and finest examples of this work the marvels of skill and beauty which summed up as it were in the book of kells the book of duro and others set the irish manuscripts beyond imitation or rivalry most of these books are psalters or gospels in latin 
while the remainder consist of missals and other religious compilations, and of them all the Book of Kells is the most famous. It was written in the seventh century, and probably indicates the highest point of skill reached by the Irish artist scribes, or as regards its own particular style of ornamentation, by any artist scribes whatever. It is a book of the Gospels written in Latin on vellum, and the size of the volume, of the writing, and of the initial letters is unusually large. The leaves measure thirteen and a half by nine and a half inches. The illustrations represent various incidents in the life of Christ and portraits of the evangelists accompanied by formal designs. Ornamentation is largely introduced into the text, and the first few words of each gospel are so lavishly decorated and have initial letters of such size that in each case they occupy the whole of a page. The book just described was preserved at Kells until the early part of the 17th century. It is then passed into Archbishop Usher's possession, and finally into the library of Trinity College, Dublin, where it is now treasured. Of course it is impossible to give here a reproduction of a page of this marvelous book in its proper size and colors. Our illustrations, however, may convey a little idea of the accuracy and minuteness of the work, which, it is hardly necessary to say, was done entirely by hand, and will serve as a text for a brief summary of the chief features of Irish book art. The design here shown is composed of a diagonal cross set in a rectangular frame, having in each angle a symbol of one of the four evangelists. The colors in this design, as reproduced by Professor Westwood in his Miniatures and Ornaments of Anglo-Saxon and Irish Manuscripts, principally consist of red, dark, and light mauve, green, yellow, and blue-gray. The animals depicted are quaint, but not ridiculous, and the figure of St. Matthew in the upper angle of the cross, though stiff and ungraceful, is less peculiar than other figures in the book. The Irish artist was always more successful in designing and executing geometrical systems of ornamentation than in representing living figures. The interlacing, which forms a large part of the design under consideration, is characteristic of Celtic work. The regularity with which the bands pass under and over, even in the most complicated patterns, is very remarkable, and errors are rarely to be detected. The spirals which occupy the four panels at the ends and sides of the frame are also typical of this school of art. The firmness and accuracy of their drawing testify to the excellent eyesight, as well as to the steady hand and technical skill of the artist. The prevailing feature of Celtic ornament, as shown in illuminated manuscripts, is the geometrical nature of the designs. The human figure when introduced into the native Irish books is absurdly grotesque, for its delineation seems to have been beyond the artist's skill,
or, more correctly, to have lain in another category, and to have belonged to a style distinct from that in which he excelled. At a later period, figure-drawing became a marked characteristic of English decorated manuscripts, and English artists attained to a high degree of skill in this branch of their art. Bright colors were employed in the Irish manuscripts, but gold and silver are conspicuous by their absence, and did not appear in the manuscripts of these islands until Celtic art had been touched by continental influence. The tradition that the Book of Kells was written by the great St. Columba himself reminds us that at this period nearly all books were the handiwork of monks and ecclesiastics, and in all monasteries the transcribing of the scriptures and devotional works was part of the established order of things. Columba, we know, was a famous scribe and took great pleasure in copying books, he is said to have transcribed no less than three hundred volumes, and all books written by him were believed to be miraculously preserved from danger by water. As an instance of this, Adamnon relates the following story. A book of hymns for the office of every day in the week, and in the handwriting of St. Columba, having slipped, with the leathern satchel which contained it, from the shoulder of a boy who fell from a bridge, was immersed in a certain river, in the province of the Legenians, Leinster. This very book lay in the water from the feast of the nativity of our Lord till the end of the paschal season, and was afterwards found on the bank of the river, uninjured, and as clean and dry as if it had never been in the water at all and we have ascertained as undoubted truth continues adamnon from those who were well informed in the matter that the like things happened in several places with regard to books written by the hand of st columba and he adds that the account just given he received from certain truthful excellent and honourable men who saw the book itself perfectly white and beautiful after a submersion of so many days as we have stated by irish missionaries the art of book writing was taught to britain chiefly through the school of lindisfarne where was produced the famous lindisfarne gospels or the book of saint cuthbert this magnificent work which is one of the choicest treasures of the british museum was as highly esteemed by its contemporaries as by ourselves, though perhaps not for quite the same reasons. Tradition has it that when Lindisfarne was threatened by the Northmen and the monks had to fly, they took with them the body of St. Cuthbert in obedience to his dying behest, and this book. They attempted to seek refuge in Ireland, but their boat had scarcely reached the open sea when it met a storm so violent that through the pitching of the little vessel the book fell overboard sorrowfully they put back but during the night st cuthbert appeared to one of the monks and ordered him to seek for the book in the sea on beginning their search they found that the tide had ebbed much further than it was wont to do and by going out about three miles, 
they came upon the holy book, not a whit the worse for its misadventure. By this, says the old historian, were their hearts refreshed with much joy, and the book was afterwards named in the priory rolls as the book of St. Cuthbert, which fell into the sea. This notable volume is an excellent example of Celtic book art in the beginning of its transition stage, a stage which marks the approach to the two schools which were the result of the combination of Celtic and Continental influences in the hands of intelligent and skillful Anglo-Saxon scribes, the Hiberno-Saxon and the English schools. It contains the four Gospels written in Latin and arranged in double columns, each Gospel being preceded by a full-page formal design of Celtic work and a full-page portrait of the evangelist. The conjunction of these two distinct styles of ornament forms one of the chief points of interest in the book. The formal designs of interlaced, spiral, and key patterns so characteristic of Celtic work, shows its near kinship to the Irish books, while the portraits prove an almost equally close connection with Roman and Byzantine models. There is reason to believe that the classical element is due to the influence of an Italian or Byzantine book, or books bought to Lindisfarne by Theodore, Archbishop of Canterbury, and his friend Adrian, an Italian abbot, when the archbishop visited the island for the purpose of consecrating Aden's church, the Lindisfarne Gospels accompanied St. Cuthbert's body to Durham in 995, but rather more than a century later was restored to Lindisfarne and remained there until the monastery which had replaced St. Aden's foundation was dissolved at the Reformation. It is then lost sight of until it reappears in the famous Cotton Library, with which it is now possessed by the nation. The English School of Illumination had its chief seat at Winchester. Its work is characterized by its figure drawing, and while the foliage ornament introduced, together with the gold which was largely used in the Winchester manuscripts, indicate continental influence, the interlaced and other patterns are derived from the Irish school. Of this class of manuscript, the Benedictional of Ethelworld in the Duke of Devonshire's library may serve as a typical example. It was written for Ethelwald, Bishop of Winchester, by his chaplain Godemon, towards the end of the tenth century. Were it practicable to offer the reader a reproduction of one of its pages, it would be seen that it exactly illustrates what has just been said. Its figure drawing and foliated ornamentation are among its most striking features. The Norman Conquest opened up the English School of Art more widely to continental influence, with the result that towards the end of the 13th and beginning of the 14th centuries, the English manuscripts were unsurpassed by any in Europe. As a typical specimen of the illuminations of this period, we may with propriety 
select one which has been described by Sir Edward Maund Thompson as the very finest of kind, and probably unique in its combination of excellence of drawing, brilliance of illumination, and variety and extent of subjects. It is a Psalter dating from the 14th century, and known as Queen Mary's Psalter, because a customs officer of the Port of London, who intercepted it as it was about to be taken out of the country, presented it to the Queen in 1553. This magnificent book is now in the British Museum. During the 12th and 13th centuries, a large number of Bibles and Psalters were written, and made up the greater part of the book output of the larger monasteries to which we are indebted for all our fine pieces of manuscript work indeed most of the decorated manuscripts of this period are occupied with the scriptures services liturgies and other matters of the kind and on such the best work was lavished later however the growing taste for romances and stories induced a corresponding tendency to decorate these secular manuscripts too, and some very fine work of this class was produced, especially in France. The books of the Chronicles of England and of France, written in the 14th and 15th centuries, were also largely adorned with painted miniatures. Nearly all the writing of Europe was done in the religious houses. In most of the larger monasteries, there was a scriptorium, or writing room, where Bibles, Psalters, and service books, and patristic and classical writings were transcribed, chronicles and histories compiled, and beautiful specimens of the illuminator's art carefully, skillfully, and lovingly executed. Books, however, were not only written in the monasteries, but read as well. The rule of St. Benedict insisted that the steady reading of books by the brethren should form the part of the daily round. Archbishop Lanfranc also, in his orders for the English Benedictines, directed that once a year books were to be distributed and borrowed volumes to be restored. For this purpose, the librarian was to have a carpet laid down in the chapter house, the monks were to assemble, and the names of those to whom books had been lent were to be read out. Each in turn had to answer to his name and restore his book, and he who had neglected to avail himself of this privilege and had left his book unread was to fall on his face and implore forgiveness then the books were redistributed for study during the ensuing year. This custom was generally followed by all the monasteries of Lanfranc's time. Richard Onvergyle, Bishop of Durham, born in 1281 at Bury St. Edmunds, and therefore usually known as Richard de Bury, gives a vivacious picture of the attitude of a book lover of the Middle Ages in his Philobiblon, or Lover of Books. There he sings the praises of books, and voices their lament over their ill-treatment by degenerate clerks and by the unlearned. He also tells how he gathered his library, 
which was then the largest and best in england philobiblon is written in vigorous and even violent language and is worth quoting books according to this extravagant eulogy are wells of living water golden urns in which manna is laid up or rather indeed honeycombs the four-streamed river of paradise where the human mind is fed and the arid intellect moistened and watered you o oh books are the golden vessels of the temple the arms of the clerical militia with which the missiles of the most wicked are destroyed fruitful olives vines of engedi fig trees knowing no sterility burning lamps to be ever held in the hand then the books are made to utter their plaint because of the indignity to which they are subjected by the degenerate clergy we are expelled from the domiciles of the clergy apportioned to us by hereditary right in some interior chamber of which we had our peaceful cells but to their shame in these nefarious times we are altogether banished to suffer opprobrium out of doors our places moreover are occupied by hounds and hawks and sometimes by a biped beast a woman to wit wherefore this beast ever jealous of our studies and at all times implacable spying us at last in a corner protected only by the web of some long-deceased spider drawing her forehead into wrinkles laughs us to scorn abuses us in virulent speeches points us out as the only superfluous furniture in the house complains that we are useless for any purpose of domestic economy whatever and recommends our being bartered away forthwith for costly headdresses cambric silk twice dipped purple garments woolen linen and furs after this terrible picture of feminine ignorance and malevolence it is refreshing to turn to the achievements of the pious diamidus by way of contrast diamidus was a nun at wessobrunn in bavaria who lived in the eleventh century nuns are not often referred to as writers but of this lady it is recorded that she wrote in a most beautiful and legible character and no less than thirty-one books some of which were in two three and even six volumes these she transcribed to the praise of god and of the holy apostles peter and paul the patrons of this monastery although the greater part of the book writing of this time was done in the monasteries and by monks and ecclesiastics there were also secular professional writers a class who had followed this occupation from very early days they consisted of antiquary library and illuminators though sometimes the functions of all three were performed by one person they were employed chiefly by the religious houses to assist in the transcription and restoration of their books and by the lawyers for whom they transcribed legal documents the antiquary were the highest in rank for their work did not consist merely of writing or copying but included the restoration of faulty pages 
the revision of texts, the repair of bindings, and other delicate tasks connected with the older and more valuable books which could not be entrusted to the library or common scribes. On the whole, the production of books was more of an industry in those days than we should believe possible, unless we admit that the Dark Ages were not quite as dark as they have been painted. There was always about us in our halls, says Richard D. Bury, who no doubt was a munificent patron of all scribes and book workers, no small assemblage of antiquaries, scribes, bookbinders, correctors, illuminators, and generally of all such persons as were qualified to labor in the service of books. Books of a great size were frequently monuments of patience and industry, and sometimes half a lifetime was devoted to a single volume. Books, therefore, fetched high prices, though they were not always paid for in money. In 1174, the prior of St. Swithun's, Winchester, gave the canons of Dorchester in Oxfordshire for Bede's homilies and St. Augustine's Psalter, twelve measures of barley, and a pall on which was embroidered in silver the history of St. Birinus's conversion of the Saxon king Sinegils. A hundred years later, a Bible fairly written, that is, finely written, was sold in this country for fifty marks, or about thirty-three pounds. At this period, a sheep cost one shilling. In the time of Richard de Bury, a common scribe earned a halfpenny a day. About 1380, some of the expenses attending the production of an evangelarium, or book of the liturgical gospels, included thirteen and fourpence for the writing, four and threepence for the illuminating, three and fourpence for the binding, and a tenpence a day for eighteen weeks, in all fifteen shillings, for the writer's commons, or food. The book writers or copyists became, later, the book sellers, very much as they did in old Rome. Sometimes they both wrote and sold the books, and sometimes the sellers employed the writers to write for them, or the writers employed the sellers to sell for them. Publishers, as yet, did not exist. Practically the only method of publication known consisted of the reading of a work on three days in succession before the heads of the university or other public judges, and the sanctioning of its transcription and reproduction. The booksellers were called stationers, either because they transacted their business at open stalls or stations, or perhaps from the fact that statio is low Latin for shop, and since they were also the vendors of parchment and other writing materials, the word stationer is still used to designate those who carry on a similar trade today. As early as 1403, there was already formed in London a society or brotherhood of the craft of writers of text letter, and those commonly called limners or illuminators 
for in that year they petitioned the lord mayor for permission to elect wardens empowered to see that the trades were honorably pursued and to punish those of the craft who dealt disloyally or who rebelled against the warden's authority this petition was granted by fifteen o one the company of stationers was established and it is highly probable that this was only the brotherhood of text-writers and limners under the more general designation the well-known names of paternoster row amen corner ave maria lane and creed lane still remain to show us where the london stationers who sold the common religious leaflets and devotional books of the day had their stalls close to st paul's cathedral and in some cases even against the walls of the cathedral itself and where too the makers of beads and paternosters plied their trade and londoners at least will not need to be reminded that at this very moment paternoster row is almost entirely inhabited by sellers of books religious and otherwise there is also a queer open-air stall on the south side which serves to carry on the ancient tradition of the place societies similar to that of the text writers and limners of london also existed on the continent and especially at bruges in which city literature and book production flourished under the patronage of philip de bon duke of burgundy who himself gave constant employment to numerous writers copyists translators and illuminators in the work of building up his famous library the members of the guild of st john the evangelist in bruges represented no less than fifteen different trades or professions connected with books and writing they included booksellers print sellers painters of vignettes painters scriveners and copiers of books schoolmasters and schoolmistresses illuminators printers bookbinders couriers cloth shearers parchment and vellum makers boss carvers letter engravers figure engravers of course the printers here mentioned would at first be block printers only as will be shown presently and it is worth noticing that in all this long list which cannot be called at all exclusive there is no mention of authors the medieval booksellers were not all permitted to ply their trade in their own way since the supply of books for the students depended on them the universities of paris oxford and elsewhere deemed it their duty to keep them under control having in view the maintenance of pure texts and the interests of the students at whose expense the booksellers were not to be permitted to fatten by the rules of the university of paris the bookseller was required to be a man of wide learning and high character and to bind himself to observe the laws regarding books laid down by the university he was forbidden to offer any manuscript for sale until it had been examined and found correct and were any inaccuracy detected in it by the examiner he was liable to a fine or the burning of the book 
according to the magnitude of his error. The price of books was also fixed by the university, and the vendor forbidden to make more than a certain rate of profit on each volume. Again, the bookseller could not purchase any books without the sanction of the university, for fear that he might be the means of disseminating heretical or immoral literature. Later, it was made obligatory on him to lend out books on hire to those who could not afford to buy them, and to expose in his shop a list of these books and the charges at which they were to be had. The poor booksellers, thus hedged about with restrictions, often joined some other occupation to that of selling manuscripts in order to make both ends meet, but when this practice came to the notice of the university, they were censured for degrading their noble profession by mixing with it vile trades. But presumably no such rules as the above hampered the booksellers of non-university towns such as London. The control assumed by the universities over the book trade presently extended to interference with original writings and a censorship of literature. With the introduction of printing and the consequent increase of books and of the facilities for reproducing them, this censorship was taken up by the church. Ecclesiastical censorship, however, was not the outcome of the university's assumption of control over the book trade. It sprang from the jealousy of the clergy, who opposed the spread of knowledge among the people, some, perhaps, because they knew that knowledge in ignorant hands is dangerous, and others because they feared their own prestige might suffer. This feeling existed before printing, though printing brought it to a head. For instance, in 1415, the penalty in this country for reading the scriptures in the vernacular was forfeiture of land, cattle, body, wife, and goods by the offenders and their heirs forever, and that they should be condemned for heretics to God, enemies to the crown, and most errant traitors to the land. They were refused right of sanctuary, and if they persisted in the offense, or relapsed after a pardon, were first to be hanged for treason against the king, and then burned for heresy against God. Thus the clergy upheld and encouraged a censorship of the press. As early as 1479, Conrad de Homborg, a Cologne printer, had issued a Bible accompanied by canons, etc., which was allowed and approved by the University of Cologne, and in 1486, the Archbishop of Mentz issued a mandate forbidding the translation into the vulgar tongue of Greek, Latin, and other books without the previous approbation of the university. Finally, in 1515, a bull of Leo X required bishops and inquisitors to examine all books before they came to be printed, and to suppress any heretical matter. The vicar of Croydon, preaching at St. Paul's Cross about the time of the spread of the art of printing, 
is said to have declared that we must root out printing or printing will root us out but an ecclesiastical censorship over the english press was not established until fifteen fifty nine when an injunction issued by queen elizabeth provides that because of the publication of unfruitful vain and infamous books and papers no manner of person shall print any manner of book on paper except the same be first licensed by her majesty or by approval of her privy council or be perused and licensed by the archbishops of canterbury and york the bishop of london etc the injunction extended also to pamphlets plays and ballots so that nothing therein should be either heretical seditious or unseemly for christian ears classical authors however and works hitherto commonly received in universities and schools were not touched by the injunction end of chapter four end of section two